Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, Postscript Edition. Much has been made of the legislative action that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt passed in his first 100 days in office. And whether or not this is the best way to judge a president, Lily Gorin and I thought it was good time to take stock of the Biden presidency with three fabulous political scientists. We're going to start with hot takes from each of our guests and then move to what we hope will be a spirited conversation of what Biden has done and what he might do in his the remains of his presidency. I'll introduce, I guess I'll introduce people before they speak. Uh, that way we don't have a whole bunch of intros. Uh, we'll start with Jonathan Bernstein. He's familiar to many as the Bloomberg opinion columnist covering politics and policy, also doing Bloomberg television and radio. He taught political science at the University of Texas at San Antonio and DePaul University. And his most recent book is The Making of the Presidential Candidates, Roman and Littlefield 2020. And Lily interviewed him and his co-editor, Casey Dominguez for the New Books Network. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. All right, Jonathan, start us off. Your hot take. You know, it's Joe Biden. It's not all that hot. But, um, you know, we have return to normalcy is really the headline, right, for the Biden presidency. Um, the two things that I think are most interesting to me are, number one, going back to Dwight Eisenhower's structure for how you run the White House with a strong um, chief of staff, uh, what is, has generally been the Republican model. And for many, many years, Democrat, you know, it's a big deal. For many, many years, Democrats tried not to do this. And even up through Bill Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton starts with a weak, very, very, very weak chief of staff. It's a complete disaster, just as Jimmy Carter had, just as to some extent Lyndon Johnson had. They move over the course of the administration to a strong chief of staff. Obama finally puts an end to that and says, we're going to do it Eisenhower's way. Trump departs from the Republican model and basically goes with chaos. That doesn't work very well. Um, and so we return to uh, now, and Biden goes right back to what Obama did, no surprise, because he was vice president and to the Eisenhower model. The other part of it is that it's going, it, it very much once again is a partisan presidency um, as Richard Skinner talks about, you know, when we talk about Joe Biden here, he's not that important. This is the democratic party. And so some of the important things that are happening whether it's in policy or personnel really tell you much, much more about where the democratic party is in 2021 than where Joe Biden himself is Joe Biden's, you know, secret trick is that he's always been very, very good at finding exactly the center of the Democratic Party and lurching to it without looking somehow or another like he's pandering to it, um, possibly because of Biden's, you know, propensity to shoot off his mouth and, uh, you know, his, his other Bidenisms. So he doesn't sort of seem like he's pandering to the middle of the party, but in fact, he's doing that. Um, and so it's a partisan presidency. That means we're learning about where the Democratic Party is today, which means it's a much more diverse party. It's a party that's led by the energy of women. And so we have a, you know, through the last I looked, which was this morning, uh, Biden is now up to 53% of the executive branch nominations he's made are women. Um, the previous Harrison would be Biden had 28% of his confirmed nominations were women over the first 300 days. This is, we have 
not just equal numbers of women, we have more women throughout the administration, not just, you know, in, in gender specific type, gendered, but in, in national security and wherever you look in the administration, he rarely makes an, a set of appointments without it being 50-50 or majority women. Um, and that's not Joe Biden, that's the Democratic Party. Um, I think I'll stop there. Oh, thanks, Jonathan, for getting us off uh, on a on a on a swift and varied. But um, our next panelist is Dr. Nadia E. Brown. She is currently associate professor of political science and African American studies at Purdue. But in July, she'll become professor of government and director of women's and gender studies at Georgetown University. She's the author of the new book, Sister Style, The Politics of Appearance of Black Women Political Elites from Oxford 2021 with Daniel Lemmy. You'll hear a podcast on that coming out soon. She's also the author of Sisters in the State House, Black Women in Legislative Decision-Making from Oxford in 2014. She's the editor or co-editor or lead editor of several books, uh, Distinct Identities, Minority Women in U.S. Politics from Rutledge, uh, body Politics, also from Rutledge, Me Too Political Science from Rutledge, and uh, The Politics of Protest, Readings of the Black Lives Matter Movement, again on Rutledge. And I think there's one more that I think I may have missed. She's a founding board member of Women Also Know Stuff and also an editorial member of The Monkey Cage. Welcome, Nadia, to New Books and Political Science. Thanks. I could have given you a much more condensed biography. <laughs> Yeah, we don't do condensed here. That's just fine. So. <laughs> okay. Um, so my my hot take is that these hundred days don't really matter in the same ways. So I think that when we're living in a social media world, um, and particularly a captive audience world, because we're all at home um, or should be at home because of COVID the news cycle and what's happening in the world is really dictating as much of um, Biden's strategy, his policy, his political preferences as are um, right, the things that he tried to put in place during the transition period. I think that this is um, probably a relic of, uh, as Jonathan was saying, this is a relic of our political system to a good or worse, I'm not sure, kind of kind of a relic. But I think, you know, and I don't want to blame this all on Trump as saying he really blew up the model. And now um, now Biden is coming in to figure out his own his own way in a in a post-traditional executive world. But I will say that um, that the world has changed, right? And we are no longer looking to 100 days as a particular marker. Instead, I think because of the 24-hour news cycle, I think that because of how we're all in our own kind of silos and how we get information, how we process information, who we talk to information about, that um, these hundred days are really less focused on the president's agenda, but more so on partisan agendas and kind of where you are in your particular, um, your lean or your, or your bent for, uh, for, for what you think about politics and policy. That's really driven by the news cycle. I think, unfortunately, um, in this age of Twitter, social media, and the 24-hour news cycle, 100 days is just a plain catch-up whoever's happening in the world and then trying to sneak in your policy when and where you can. 
Uh, no, I and I appreciate you pushing back on the hundred days. I knew I knew somebody would. Um, <laughs> uh, but it is a great excuse for a podcast, um, uh, and and a great a great excuse for all of us to get together and to in, engage in the conversation. Um, our last participant is Dr. Jane John. She's professor of political science and gender and sexuality studies at the University of Southern California. Her books include the award-winning Education and Democratic Citizenship in America uh, with Norma Nye and Kenneth Stelic Barry, Civic Education, What Makes Students Learn with Richard Nimi, uh, New Race Politics, Understanding Minority and Immigrant Politics, uh, edited with Carrie Haney, Asian American Political Participation, Emerging Constituents and Their Political Identities, uh, with other co-authors that I'm not gonna name and also the award-winning The Politics of Belonging, Race, Public Opinion and Immigration. Uh, <clears throat> she has a recent article on the gender with uh, Natalie Masuka on the gender gap is a race gap, women voters in the US presidential elections. She is a great friend of mine from graduate school and somebody I've always admired and I'm thrilled to ha have her on the podcast today. Great, thanks, nice to be here and, and uh... Thank you, Susan and Lily, for having me and to my co-podcasters uh, as well. Um, I think you're both right. I'm going to give a slightly different hot take. And I don't know if it's so much of a hot take as I think that these 100 days are really a pause button for all of us to sort of say, oh, we, ha we have hit the pause button on the political dystopia that was personified by the previous president. And yet every day is a reminder, as Jonathan reminded us prior to getting on our, on the actual recording, that all kinds of things are happening. Our bigger problems are the problems that have always existed, or at least existed not in, in the past four uh, years, but earlier than that, is on the immigration question, which we'll come to in a moment, and limits on immigration imposed by the Biden administration. But I think more prominently, as we see in our newsfeed every day, police shootings, killing of the killings of uh, men of color, just people of color more generally, and also the mass murder shootings. None of these problems and underlying issues have gone away. And I think the hot take then is that the pause button's just been hit mm. and maybe it'll go off before those hundred days. So instead of you know kind of giving an overall take on his first 100 days, what I'd like us to maybe think about is um, while we're still embracing a return to competence on some level, we are, we are embracing this return to competence that would include some intelligence, some rationality, preparation, integrity, and maybe that is the hottest thing that Biden has done, return us back to what we have always expected uh, from presidents, not always fulfilled, but nevertheless uh, expected. And I guess what I want to do as a scholar of political behavior, and by that I mean what do ordinary people do and how do they interpret events, is I want to raise a couple of questions for us to maybe consider. Once this 100 days is over, then the real stuff begins, right? And the questions that I have, I have three, they're kind of all related, but they're dis different in, in other ways, is I, I guess what I want to know is after this pause button has been lifted, I want to know how people, how are voters going to respond to the policies that Biden has tried to introduce and push through in those hundred days? So in particular, you know, in the broadest sense, what are, what is the role of 
facts and rationality? And you'd think that's kind of a crazy question for the 90s in political science, but it's not, right? Many people are refusing to get the vaccine despite scientific information and facts. Moreover, um, is it rational for people to be behaving not only in that respect, but how they cast their votes? Why is it that in particular poor whites or working class whites continue to support the Republican party and the policies that don't uh, help them at all really? This leads to another question that I have about the role of um, pocketbook issues. This is an old fashioned political science term, but one that speaks to not just the question of what the broader economic conditions are, but how it is that it's affecting you. Let's take the child uh, credits that the Biden administration has just passed through and uh, parents with children will receive actual real money from the government and it will help individuals, particularly and families that are in poverty. And this, this covers everybody. It doesn't matter what your uh, race or ethnicity or where you live, if you're in a big city or not. So what the question that I have is how and to what extent these pocketbook issues will then compete with the cultural issues that are so strong and uh, featured heavily by Republican uh, opinion leaders, but then how will Republican voters react to that? I mean, I think we're looking to 22, not only for control of the United States House of Representatives, but the Senate as well. These things hang in the balance. They speak to many of the other things that will then come down the pike, and that would include nominations to the United States Supreme Court, um, judge um, confirmations, as well as all kinds of other efforts at additional legislation to undo and to move forward from the previous four years. And that leads me to wonder about 24 also. I know it's only 21, but it leads me to wonder about 24 because I wonder where is our vice president? So far, Vice President Harris has been standing in behind the president in a bodyguard position. And I've often thought this is sort of like the Whitney Houston Kevin Costner flipped. She's standing as the bodyguard. I haven't heard too much from her. They brought her down to Atlanta to speak after Asian American women, among others, were murdered uh, by a perpetrator there in a mass murder. But Vice President Harris has been relatively silent. And with apologies for those Hollywood references, I wonder when will, will Vice President Biden follow the path of those before her, but those vice presidents who've been seen but not heard, or if it's actually the case that Biden does not intend to pursue the nomination in 24, he's been um, not explicit about that, but implicit in indicating that the party's future is not him, but those behind him. When is she going to take the front space rather than the back? And this gives us quite a lot of um, substance to move forward um, with. And I, I wanted to ask this question to sort of pick up on some of the points that all of you brought up. Jonathan talking about the return to normalcy um, and Jane talking about the pause button um, and also um, Nadia's discussion of sort of the life after Trump, but we're still in the world that Trump created with regard to social media and the sort of speed with which we experience politics. Um, 
And one of the comments during the campaign was that Biden was going to make politics boring again. Has he done that? And is that really, in fact, possible? I granted we're all political scientists, so we probably are somewhat biased. Um, but how does that fit into these questions of rationality, normalcy, um, but also the speed with which we consume the politics that surrounds us? Anybody can jump into that one. Well, I don't think politics are, and so yeah, so we don't have a narcissist in chief, right? But politics aren't normal. Um, and so in the last five weeks, right? Or has it been eight weeks? There's been five mass shootings, um, right? I'm talking to you today from a little town outside of Indianapolis where there was a mass murder. Many people killed really recently. Um, you know, also not far away from Chicago, where a 13 year old boy was killed with his hands up. And um, right as we're sitting here waiting for the results of the Derek Chauvin um, uh, trial, right, it just feels like politics is not normal. What may be more normal is having a president who is showing empathy to families and victims, um, in some ways, right, paying lip service. There is this George Floyd, um, the George Floyd Act, hopefully trying to make its way through Congress, but it's, you know, it's a Band-Aid on top of an already corrupt system, right? Policing has its roots in slave catching, through, even from colonial time, right? So there's like putting a Band-Aid on a cancer. Um, so more progressive acts like the Breathe Act won't make its way through, through Congress. But our president is at least saying that racial injustice is a thing. And so the, the or mass murders should stop. We should, we should not have such a proliferation of guns in our country. Some of these things are just common sense um, policies or stances. But what, um, I guess what makes me think that we're returning to politics as normal is not a good thing or that the solutions that the Biden administration is, 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 um, is putting forth, right? Again, they're just these pragmatic, incremental, let's fix a system that we know to be flawed and broken. So yeah, to, to round this out, right? I think that a return to normal is something that many marginalized communities say they don't want to do going back after COVID is over. And I think a, um, you know, America needs to hold up a mirror to ourselves and recognize we have an opportunity to become something that we would like to be. And we have a couple of options, right? So we know that Republicans do much better at obstructing than actually pushing forth policy. So we can think about, let's just take one party off the table and particularly a party that is filled with treasonous and seditious actors who we couldn't, you know, leverage the 14th Amendment against or any kind of, you know, get them out of holding some of these positions in Congress right now. But on the other hand, right, we have a Democratic Party, this is what Jonathan was talking about earlier, right, that is in some ways bifurcated by the progressives and the moderates. And we're seeing, you know, Joe Manchin as partly like kingmaker of, of policies at this time. So how do Democrats decide how they want to govern? Um, and recognizing that the Biden administration has one bite at this apple. They're probably going to lose, the Democrats will probably lose in 2024. Um, that's just patterns. It's not saying that it's good or bad or indifferent, right? It's just the presidential party usually 
uh, loses houses, um, loses seats in both houses of Congress in the midterms. And if that's the case, you got two years to go gangbusters. So do it all, do it all, right? And you know that Republicans are only going to be, again, these obstructors in chief. They're going to try to put up blockades and not necessarily offer solutions that are hitting at the most pressing issues that Americans think now are common sense things. So, yeah, so, right, so, so to kind of sum this up, it seems like we should be doing more than trying to hold this president accountable for returning to normalcy, but to really think about having bold leadership during a time where this country really needs it. Yeah, I, 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 as I look at sort of where the Democratic Party is, right, you have this party that's empowered women that in a lot of ways has empowered Black uh, Democrats or de Black Democrats have become a power within the party, is probably a better way of saying it, um, that other um, groups that have been marginalized in some ways have become important in the party. And in some ways, you know, you're still talking about Joe Manchin as the key vote in the Senate. And you're talking about solutions that the most of the mainstream of the party isn't going to look at radical solutions. And, and in some ways, that's even true for sort of the progressive liberal breakdown, you know, that, that you're not talking about um, Bernie Sanders or or Elizabeth Warren are not talking about um, certainly not police abolition, <laughs> um, you know, and, and and don't really have answers, you know. What are the so the Democratic Party as a whole doesn't quite have it there, right? And on the other hand, it's certainly you have a president who is sort of who's not even saying giving put, pushing them in that direction or you know acknowledging the scope of the problems without necessarily having solutions. And so uh, the next question, I guess, is to go to Congress and see if they can do it. But Congress isn't passing things because of the, the Democrats didn't win a large enough margin, essentially. So how does Biden deal with that going forward? You know, with it, we're going to see what he can do with the executive actions, as he's already done a little bit on guns, um, on, on other things. But you know, you have this sort of situation where normalcy, which is what he specializes in, isn't enough. I, I'm, not, I'm not expressing this right. Because I think at the same time, like the, the stuff that was in the relief bill was really extraordinary. That was not normalcy. Um, so there's some of it, but it's not there. I, I'm not, you know, I think that a lot of Democrats, progressive, liberal across the board, don't really have answers to anything with any hope of, or, or that they think that has a hope of actually having the votes to be implemented. And so you have a lot of frustration on police violence, on poverty, on housing that has now emerged as sort of major issues that the party acknowledges, but they don't have solutions to it yet. Um, so, and, and you have this two year thing, right? <laughs> exactly correct. So that's the challenge ahead for the administration. They have people, they have a lot of competent people who mean well and sort of are, are have honest views of what the, and, and good views of what problems are out there in the country without necessarily having solutions ready to go on a lot of them. You know, the solutions ready to go are for things maybe that were, that were the democratic mainstream 10, 20 years ago. The problems existed back then, but weren't within the democratic mainstream. Now the problems are there. Are, now they acknowledge the problems, but I'm not so sure that they have comprehensive solutions ready to go at all. 
Jane, can I ask you a question? I know you also sure. want to say something, but you can wrap it all together. So, so Jonathan is, seems pretty certain that appointing more women is a form of empowerment and will translate into something. Like we haven't seen it, it's only a hundred days, but I think his implication is that if, if we appoint more women, if, if more people of color have roles in the party and the government, that, that will translate into different substantive decisions. But if I heard you right, what you were expressing was a, a lot of skepticism as to whether or not some of this is window dressing, using the example of you know, what is Kamala Harris doing? What is her role? Is she a partner or is she a bodyguard? So I'm wondering what you think about uh, this argument about appointing people and the extent to which there is real power and we can see real substantive change. That's a good question. It's the question of the day for, uh, if, if not identity politics, broadly speaking, at least within with respect to descriptive representation for women. I mean, is it is it great that Amy Coney Barrett's on the Supreme Court? Not so much, right? And I guess that's a that's an extreme example, but the question, and I think the 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 sentiment is is good, right? That the notion that we no longer have or we're less likely to have uh, a, you know, the the mandarins of government. So in this case, the executive branch uh, appointees, which who all come from the same place in essence, and who are all mostly white guys from the northeast. It, it's better that it's not like that and that the Biden administration is trying to change that and is in fact doing that. But it is neither a net, it is not a sufficient condition and sometimes it's not even necessary. Is it better with it? Yes. But all of the research that we know of, whether it's in economics or business schools on the corporate boardroom or for that matter in higher education, or I mean, look at all, look at all of us in political science. More women in political science has has changed some things, but as Nadia noted, the structural barriers against and the strength of white heteropatriarchy, it is a tough nut to crack. It won't be cracked by having 50% female. I mean, I'd just like to note that, let me ask you this question. What is the, our, what's the modal voter in American politics today? Is the modal voter a man or a woman? So are there more women or are there more men in the electorate today? I'm fairly certain it's more women. Right. What, what about in the, in like 1980? Wasn't that when the gender gap started? Yep. So I think that was the first election where there may have been more women than men. In the electorate, right? Well, that's actually not true. And how about 1964? Like that's easy, right? There were definitely more men in the electorate, right? Nope. No. There were more women in the electorate, right? There's, there've been more women in the electorate since the sixties in the United States. So even though, you know, there are a few more women than there are men just living, but in terms of who comes out to vote, it's always been women. Has that changed our politics, friends? A bit, but not fully. The electorate's now almost 54% female. I think things are better, um, probably, but let's not forget 2016. That was no aberration, you could argue. So the presence is possibly a necessary condition, but it certainly isn't sufficient. And it can't be just putting people in place to stand there and to stand for. They must be, if not only empowered, the structure and the system has to change in order for that, the, the demography to make a difference. 
I think we all know you may have had a dean or a provost who was a woman who didn't exactly see things the same way that you did if you're a progressive woman. Uh, various people on this podcast are smiling, but you all know what I'm talking about. Um, I, so this kind of leads into the to other question and to Lily's question is, is are we beyond, or is politics just not boring? Well, I mean, if boring means actually about policy, yeah, maybe, right? And as Nadia noted, we don't have a, a sociopathic narcissist anymore in the Oval Office, at least not sitting behind the desk. Um, and in this case, so that probably means it's going to be less funny, like there's fewer kofefis out there. But at the same time, I think it's asking a lot for fundamental change, right? It's really asking a lot. And what you need is not only the right person, as Jonathan noted, Biden's not that man, right? Biden's a placeholder and an important one, but in this time, this is 2020, we don't get really fundamental, significant, longstanding social and structural change in the United States in the 1900s until FDR. And after what? A world war, um, the depression, tremendous social change, urbanization, all of these things, the, the beginnings of a true a civil rights movement in the United States. I think that for us to ask for, like, let's just say, oh, the pandemic has changed things. Well, apparently in the old days, you know, did you know there was like a communal cup? This really grosses me out, right? That like at the drinking fountain, there'd be like a cup and everybody would use it. Ick, right? But after the pandemic, people, they took away the communal cup. They made drinking fountains instead. And apparently we used to just sneeze rather than sneezing into your elbow or covering your cough. These are changes in habits that occurred as a function of the last pandemic prior to coronavirus or COVID-19. But I think what we're asking for here is something much bigger, much broader, much more fundamental. As Nadia noted earlier, you know, to if not suppress white supremacy or abolish it or smash it, even to come to terms with it is a major, major structural change that I think requires a perfect storm. And that perfect storm must not only be leadership at the very top, it must be a population willing to go along and pushing, in fact, government to do the same, institutions, and in particular, we will need the Supreme Court for that. And I think that it does require a perfect storm. And just as one last thing that I, so I'm not saying that I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm not sure the conditions are right for it at this moment. We may need to live a little bit longer to see that. I want to note that it's not just Nancy Pelosi, it's not just uh, Joe Biden, it's Nancy Pelosi too. Nancy Pelosi shut down the idea of any discussion of changing the composition and the size of the United States Supreme Court. There's a, it's not even a radical idea. I mean, it seems like a radical idea now, but it's really not that radical. It is that we have been fed for so long, the idea that there are only nine people on the court. It's hard to go back to thinking about it as something that isn't. But it's not just Biden. It is, it was the Republican or rather the Democratic Party more generally. They want to keep things the way they are because that keeps their power where it is. And so I would just wrap up by saying that, you know, I do think for social change that is really meaningful to address questions of racial violence, police brutality, economic um, subjugation, immigration, and the policies we have about making some people feel that they don't belong and really uh, hurting people who are trying to come to the United States. On top of everything else, gender inequality, um, 
all of these things are major social changes. I'm not optimistic that we'll get huge leaps and bounds, though I do think we'll get some important incremental change. And I think that's, at this point, um, not a terrible bargain for what we had to do to get this president elected in 20. Okay, following on that, uh, sorry about that for a little dead air there. Um, just wanted to uh, ask a follow-up question, and I and I agree with you, Jane, that I think it's incremental change at this point because I don't think we have the perfect storm. But I think it was fairly stormy um, <laughs> for for a stretch of time, and I think we're we're continuing to be in a storm as we sort of talk about um, not only the first hundred days of the Biden administration but also the response to the big lie um, that is going on in lots and lots of state houses. And, and so this is also where we're seeing some more of the demonstration of sort of white supremacy um, in an effort to limit the vote um, in lots of places, most, most recently in terms of Georgia. Um, and this disastrous bill that came through Florida with regard to um, tra transgendered students playing sports. Um, and so I, I do feel like there, the storm is still with us, that a lot of these sort of hot button issues that are beyond Dr. Seuss, um, because there's no legislation around Dr. Seuss, um, but there is this move that is coming out of um, sort of the previous presidents talking about the fact that he won the election um, and that there was an insurrection at the Capitol before the inauguration. Um, and so again, we have sort of our, our normal C with Biden, but how does this president, this presidency and the political structure that we have, how does it respond to the ongoing tempest that we're seeing in politics as well. Um, I, I will say that I'm very pessimistic that Democrats can do very much about um, the disaster that's the Republican Party, anti-democratic, white supremacist Republican Party, um, other than do their best to elect more Democrats. I mean, which has its own issues and all that, but um i don't see any um possibility of, of democrats affecting what republicans have become there just doesn't seem to be any leverage whatsoever uh unfortunately and you know and i don't see how how it ends well um you know it's very hard to see how how we survive a situation where the republican party has turned against democracy has gone from you know Nixon's Southern strategy to Reagan's Southern strategy plus to Trump's explicit racism to post-Trump explicit bigotry from more and more Republicans and explicit anti-democratic rhetoric from more and more Republicans. And it's one of the two major parties and sooner or later it's probably going to win. So, you know, the only, and, and there doesn't seem to be much of a disincentive from losing. Um, and it's very hard to see uh, optimistic scenarios around that. So um, somebody get, have some more optimism for me. I, all, all to, the, to me, all Joe Biden can do is 
he's trying to get the economy boosted. So maybe, uh, you know, the Democrats somehow or another managed to hold on to the House and Senate in 2022. Maybe a Democrat, whether it's Biden or Harris or somebody else gets elected. Maybe if Republicans spend 12 years out of the White House, maybe that convinces them to go and to take another course. But the truth is, I don't really see that. I think Republicans are perfectly happy to be out of office most of the time. Um, we just saw the first quarter filings and the most outrageous Republicans, um, whether that's their true beliefs or they're doing it to play to the audience, but the audience is there and they're giving those people money. And how are you gonna convince them that that's not the future of their party? And that's not a, a financially smart thing for their own self self-interest either as politicians or to just be scam artists and, and milk these people for money. And uh, somebody could say something more optimistic because I got nothing. <laughs> well, I think that, um, wait, I want to make some maybe less optimistic, but slightly, yeah, less pessimistic, slightly more optimistic uh, caveat is that we should probably think about these things as separate from the federal government and the state governments. And so what is in some ways more optimistic is that Republicans on the national level um, don't, are not putting forth meaningful politics, right? And so basically they've written themselves out of governing, um, legitimately governing for a host of other reasons. But one is like, if your job is to put forth policies, if your job is to um, try to coalesce a group of people around a common set of issues or interests, or if your goal is to, as a party, is to put forth candidates to run for office, right? Like kind of what are the things that the Republican National Party is actually doing? Most of this is falling to the state level, right? And so we're seeing state governors um, and Republicans who are majority um, legislatures really fighting these culture wars, right? And feeling like it's the thing that they need to hold on to. And so um, the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchins, said very publicly that he opposes the, the transgender medical bill, but it was, you know, vetoed, um, you know, it was overridden, the state legislature overrode his veto. And he said, like, his colleagues are not listening to medical science. They're not listening to families. And this is not something that they should be legislating on. But the Republican Party feels like they are losing ground on this identity that they want to be. And so they're, they're legislating on these type of issues that are bread and butter for their constituencies. But the problem here you know, also lies in the fact that voter suppression and redistricting and gerrymandering is running rampant. And so voters in these states right, are not necessarily all believing the things that these supermajority Republicans are, are putting forth is that they don't have the opportunity because of the way that our electoral system is designed to actually vote for people that they want to, right, that, they, that they want to have. So it's kind of like Texas, right? Texas is also putting forth some kind of pretty um, alarming social, um, social bills right now, but it's completely gerrymandered and, and relying on voter suppression, right? To keep these, um, these legislators in power. And then we think that this is what Americans want. However, that's not the case, right? And so, so I, I do think that we should be taking a, a much broader, more expansive look about how this stuff trickles up, but then also what the trickle down looks like. And unfortunately for many marginalized groups of people, the, um, the people that have the most control over your day-to-day -day local lives are your state and local officials, right? And if they're putting forth these bills that are keeping people from handing out water 
um, to you while you stand in line because the state legislature has closed down polling places or put put on more restrictive um, time limits on on voting, early voting or drop boxes, right? Like these are the things that are really impacting people on the day to day, their daily lived lives. And some of the things that we're talking about at the national level are far more removed and how people are experiencing politics and policy. Well, I am more optimistic and I'll tell you why. It's based in, I'll tell you why, because nothing stays the same, right? And Jonathan, you could be right. We could be just going there faster and going to the, to the hell in the handbasket faster. It's possible. But I'm going to give you some reasons why I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that we are clearly in a realignment. We're in it now. It's like watching your kids grow up. You're like, of course you're watching them grow up and you know they're getting bigger, but you don't really see it. And then your friends after pandemic say, my gosh, what happened to your kids? They grew so tall. Yes, they've been growing and changing right in front of you, but you don't recognize it because you're too close to it. I think we'll look back on this and recognize that we've been realigning now for some time and maybe the actual realigning election, Walter Dean Burnham, everybody remember that and all the other old stuff on realignment that nobody writes about political scientists. If you're listening, get out there and do it because we're, we're living it right now. And I think actually the Democratic Party will be will persist like it is warring in inside but still at the end coming together like the family at a thanksgiving dinner table don't like you but i'm eating dinner with you anyway whereas the republican party is actually going to get a divorce and one important part of that party will divorce is it the matt gates marjorie taylor green mitch mcconnell side or is it the um uh Mitt Romney's side, I don't know, but I think they're headed for a divorce. And that's not a reconciliation that's going to happen. They are living together, but sleeping in separate bedrooms right now, barely tolerant of one another. At some point it will break. I think that what makes me optimistic is not just that, because times will change. Democrats have won the popular vote in most elections for the last several decades. It's a, it's a, a harbinger of things to come despite all of what Republicans are doing to basically give the middle finger to democracy and all of its institutions is a last gas effort to hold on. And I think that we should think of this not only just as, oh, they're horrible and they're doing terrible things, but this is, they're, they're doing these terrible things because they got nothing else. And so why am I positive or why am I optimistic? I'm optimistic because I believe in democracy. I don't think any of us would be political scientists if we didn't. Democracy's got a shit ton of problems, but I still believe in it. And who else, who is it that's really going to make this change? I think the change will be made, as Nadia was talking about, it in terms of like the culture issues around LGBTQ, most young people are like, what are you talking about? It's okay. Nobody, nobody's freaking. Okay, there's some people maybe at Southern Methodist or something, or I don't mean to say that particular institution, sorry, SMU, but just in general. Um, the, the sort of the most extreme conservatives or the conservatives that are heavily faith-based in the Christian right might not take that. But for most younger people, LGBTQ is just part of their life. The fact that they say, I go by she and hers or him and her and his tells you that gender to them is not a binary anymore. They grew up with it. They know what this means. It's not a big issue for them. Likewise, I want to bring back the old notion of the period effect, right? So not just like a, it's not just a cohort issue or an age or life cycle issue, the period effect of the pandemic 
And who gets us out of the pandemic? It is the Democratic Party that does. It is the Democratic Party that creates infrastructure, whether we're successful getting this whole package through or not. This is the party and this is Biden is the president, but it's the party and the philosophy that says government must be, be involved in helping people when people need help. We're not here to only keep government out of your business, but we're here to help you stay in business. And that, I think, though that period effect is working a great deal on how it is that young people, people under 40, understand what's the relationship of me to government, me, myself, to government. And I do think that they will, going forward, expect this from their government and want the government to do this. And if, if that is the case, and remember that every election is a new electorate, every election you lose some of the, some of the folks that hang on tight to saying marriage is between a man and a woman, or to say that you know African-Americans are inferior to whites, we lose some of them. Yeah, we've produced some more other ones, younger ones, but just the same philosophy, but we have moved on from that. And I think the culture wars do not sit well with younger voters and not immigrant voters either who came to America for a better life and who believe in democracy. So I'm not super optimistic this is gonna happen next election or maybe even in 28 in the next presidential beyond the time Kamala Harris should be running. But I am optimistic longer term because I think there have always been challenges um, to, and among the most significant, of course, is the secession of the Southern states. That was the extreme example. I hope we don't have another civil war, but I do think that what we're going to see before that is a significant realignment where the Republican party is no longer recognizable as it is today. We're gonna to look back on this and say, man, those were some weird years. I'm glad I was alive to watch that. Thank goodness it's over. Um, I, I almost don't wanna ask this question because I think that the, the three of you sort of moved us through the possible continuum of, of thinking most negatively and actually the most negative leading to the most positive because I don't think there's actually a separation between what uh, in some ways what Jonathan is saying, Jane is reinterpreting as having possible positive outcomes. I wanna ask a question that is maybe silly, but I'm gonna do it anyway. So I've been thinking about this whole FDR 100 days thing. And I just think it's stupid because I don't think Biden is FDR. If he's anybody, I think he's LBJ. I think he's the creature of the Senate who shoved this through reconciliation in a way that Democrats rarely show strategic capacity to do. Uh, there's some elements of the, um, uh, of the uh, uh, the, uh, the stimulus package that is very much like great society. Uh, the George Floyd largest social protest in American history is sort of looming behind him as he as he talks in any way, even if it's not that ambitiously about race. Is HR1 like the Voting Rights Act that, would actually change things because it would, as Nani was saying, it would hit the, the gerrymander. It would hit some of these issues that make it impossible for the majority to actually get what we they want. So is that plausible? Is that ridiculous? Like, could we have something in a sense innovative simply because he understands the Senate rules and 
might be able to get some legislation through, or is that a pipe dream? Because without the end of the filibuster, there's nothing to do about it. And that's what's driving Mitch McConnell crazy, which I love to watch, right? So like Mitch McConnell is having a breakdown because Democrats are now using um, strategy the ways that Mitch McConnell has run the Senate, right? And now that McConnell's on the other end, right, as the minority leader, he is, you know, really contradicting himself in a lot of these um, these news uh, media hits that he's done, right? And so it, it's just showing where power lies. And one, I never forget, I was um, I was an undergrad at Howard University, and I still remember this to this day, walking up to campus and seeing a bumper sticker um, that just stopped in the middle of the of the street and on the crazy, you know, on a very very busy street in Washington D.C. I just stopped to read this bumper sticker, and it said. Republicans are evil, Democrats are dumb. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> and I think about that, that bumper sticker, like clearly like some 20 years later, because I think that was the case, right? Republicans have been able to use the rules or to create rules that would enable them to stay in power. And what we're seeing now is Joe Biden, who I think deeply believes in what he's trying to do. I do think right, that he's pragmatic, but I also think that he's altruistic. But he's using these rules of the Senate. He's using the rules of politics to try to get things done. And he's strategic enough to, to do it in a way that looks as if he is just um, you know, that crazy Uncle Joe that is trying to bring everyone together to the table. So maybe he is, maybe he's, I don't know him, right? I don't know his inner workings. I'm not a psychologist, I'm a political scientist, but right, he has this affable personality, which, you know, disarms some people. It's not the, um, right, like you can look on The Daily Show and find any clip of Trevor Noah making fun of Mitch McConnell as like the devil or being right, really, really devious. But Joe Biden doesn't come across that way, even if he is using some of the same strategies and techniques that Mitch McConnell would have used. Can I, can, I, I want to decenter Biden from this um, and, and put Nancy Pelosi more central to what happens. Um, and to some extent put um, generally the Democratic Party central to what happens. I, I don't, I, I think Biden, I, I don't think he's just along for the ride, um, but I think he goes where the Democratic Party wants to go. And I think that, that Nancy Pelosi more than anybody else is the strategist who has sort of, you know, envisioned, I mean, the truth is that this relief bill that was passed was not all that different from, you know, this, that plus the one that was passed right at the end of the Trump uh, term was essentially the, um, I forget, was it, was it Heroes Act? I forget what it was originally called, that Pelosi put through the Senate back in April um, or May. It was very early in the whole thing. Um, so, so I give her more credit for the strategy and for the thinking things through with big picture than I give to anybody else. And I think she's, you know, I think there should be statues of her. Uh, I hope there will be statues of her. Um, as far as whether the Democratic Party can do what the Democratic Party did in 1964, 1965, um, it's real, real hard to do without the votes. You know, if, if, if things, if the dice had come down differently and Democrats have 53 Senate seats, I think the filibuster is history. I think D.C. statehood happens. I think Puerto Rico statehood, if Puerto Rico wants it, happens. Um, I think that voting rights restoration certainly happens and a whole lot of other voting rights initiatives, whether 
I'm not I'm not sure that that they're going to have that even with 53 senators they would have had the votes for um, the campaign finance and the the gerrymander um, portions of HR one, but maybe um, certainly automatic voter registration, which is you know something that there's no good argument against, and that's that spread through the states like wildfire over the last wildfire over the last ten years um, wasn't on the agenda ten years ago and has been uh, automatic registration passed in several states, including Republican states. Um, those things could have happened. Some of them still could. It's still possible that Manchin and um, Cinema of Arizona are going to get so frustrated by Mitch McConnell and by Ted Cruz and so pissed at Ted Cruz personally and some of the, you know, Hawley and, and Cotton that they will eventually walk, you know, say, look, we, we have to pass things. And it's possible that, you know, I, I, um, it's possible that then you will get sort of a, a you know, the kind of legislative um, passage that you see in 1964, 1965, but it's also possible we've already seen what we're going to see. Um, and we'll get some good appropriations bills and we'll get some minor uh, things and that we'll do a ton, ton of stuff in the executive branch, but, but legislatively we've already hit the peak and it's real, real hard to know which way that goes. Um, you know, and it's hard to know exactly what it would take to, to, push the last couple Democrats in the Senate over the line. Well, none of, none of these things, none of these big momentous changes ever come easy. They're always tight squeakers. Just think about the 13th Amendment, Thaddeus Stevens attempting to get this through. And he does. And it's just by the skin of their teeth. It's by some bribery. It's some trickery. It's persuasion. All of these things, all of these big major changes that systematically alter the United States, with the exception of the 1965 Immigration Nationality Act. Most people didn't think that would do anything and look at us now. But for the most part, these changes that are that come through hard-fought legislation are always squeakers. And so to Susan's question, I like your dream. I like this idea that LBJ is reborn in Joe Biden, except without the edge, right? Joe Biden not going to be sitting on the toilet trying to get somebody to switch their vote on something. But he's got, he's got a certain sensibility um, that makes him believe and understand that it's got to be done through the legislature. And I think that's the place where they're the most the same. They're very different personality-wise. I haven't read all of the five volumes of Robert Caro's biography of um, LBJ, and I think there's only like one of poor Joe Biden. But in any case, it's possible that he is uh, LBJ without the edge. And I think that what's hard, and I want to go back to Jonathan's, you know, kind of pessimism, and then Nadia is also re important reminder to us all just how significant the challenges are. And I think that it's hard for Democrats to hope again, right? We did, we won, we got two terms of Obama. Okay, not all not all roses, but nevertheless, really substantial and important change. And then we got Trump. It was hard. It's hard for us to hope again, isn't it? It's hard for us to just believe you're going to get over a thousand on the SAT. You know, maybe you just can't, you just don't want to go there, right? Um, it's hard for us to hope. But, but at the same time, you know, if you don't have it, if you don't see the possibility for change, Georgia wouldn't have happened. I was born in Georgia into the pre-civil rights period, 1963. 
I actually got born in a white, in the white part of the hospital, which I don't know how that happened. And, you know, my mom would say like, I'm never going to the bathroom. She's going to go into the bathroom outside of the house because where was she supposed to go? Right. Um, not definitely not the white bathroom. So if I, I, I just couldn't see Georgia actually turning in that special election, but it does. It does. We have an African-American and a Jewish senator representing the state of Georgia in the United States Senate, making up the 49th and the 50th Democrats, making Kamala Harris more than the bodyguard, but instead the deciding vote. And so I think we have to hope because in the absence of it, we will fall to the, the worst instincts we will fall to the politics of Hawley and Cruz and McConnell, and that is not acceptable. So I think that any one of these big changes is always a, a close and a tight fight, and we need every person, male, female, all along the spectrum, every person to be working it. So I do like the idea of LBJ and Biden compared. Biden is the LBJ without the edge. And I think all the rest of us need to do our part too. And, and I appreciate that as well as Jonathan's sort of decentering of Biden um, and, and to some degree focusing on Nancy Pelosi as a strategist and pragmatic um, sort of leader of the Democratic Party in elected office and in the speakership. Um, she has been really fascinating to watch work um, in terms of working both in the Trump administration, the George W. Bush administration, and now with the Biden administration. Um, it's been sort of fascinating. Um, I wanted to thank all of our participants for joining us today. Uh, Nadia Brown, Jane June, and Jonathan Bernstein. And um, we hope that others will be able to come on with us and talk about more ideas in politics, uh, new books in political science, Postscript. Thank you from Lily Gorin and Susan LaBelle.